Well, at this moment, I'd like to dismiss kids who are going to children's church, ages three to kindergarten. If you want to head back to the back, you see Miss Brenda's back there. You're standing there. I hope you're actually leading. I don't want to assign that to you if you're not. You're in the right spot. So, kids, if you're being dismissed for children's church, feel free to head back there now. As the kids are dismissed, I'm going to invite my good friend Jared Pulliam up here. Um, ah, dang it. I love this man. Uh, we've walked through a lot together. He, we were connected previously in Portland. We were at a church together, and then we sent that church out and planted. And there may be nobody or a few people in the world I have more respect for than Jared. And then I've been wanting for him to come here for a while just to, to be with us and worship with us. So um, I've just been excited for this day. So I'm not going to say anything else. I just want to say thank you for being here. Love you and been looking forward to this. Thanks. Yeah, open up the word for us. Aaron and I first uh, met at Western Seminary in Portland, and, and there are those few people in life, you know, you can count them on one hand, whose uh, friendships become immediate and enduring, even though geography separates us, and even some times where we aren't able to talk by phone or whatever it is, it's, it's an immediate encouragement to be with them again, and those, those friendships, with he and Maggie's friendship is, is now over a decade old for us, which, which seems long and makes me feel older. I know that I say that out loud, but I'm uh, very thankful for him and, and Maggie and their ministry here with you guys. And it's great to be here with you this morning from Portland. I bring greetings from Christ Church Selwood, which is the church where I pastor in Portland in the Selwood neighborhood of southeast Portland. They, uh, they know I'm here with you today. They've been praying uh, for you as uh, thinking about me coming. Maybe they're just praying for you knowing that I'm going to be preaching to you. I don't know what they're thinking, but, uh, but they have been praying for you. And so we're thankful for the opportunity uh, to, to join geographically, as it were, recognizing that the body of Christ is far bigger than a local fellowship. It's a good reminder that uh, the Lord has gathered people to himself across the nations and across our nation. And so it's good to be together to worship with you this morning. Um, what we're going to do today, what we're going to do today is uh, go to a very familiar passage. We're going to study Psalm 23 together. Uh, it's a familiar psalm, maybe the most familiar of them all. It's a psalm we might say when we're uh, tucking our kids into bed at night. It's a psalm that's probably read at the funeral of a loved one. As we think about those different times in our lives, it is extremely well known. And oftentimes, uh, it's good for us just to remember that it's in returning to look at the most familiar things that renewing encouragement can be found. So it was C.S. Lewis who said, oftentimes we need to be reminded more often than we need to be instructed. And uh, actually the Apostle Peter picks that up in his second letter where he says, I write, both his letters, he says, I write to stir you up by way of reminder. So we need to be reminded of these good truths that uh, sustain us as we follow Christ in this life. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to remind ourselves of the, of the glorious truth of Psalm 23 today. Uh, and what I want to do is, because it's a familiar psalm, what I'd like to do is I'd like to read it together. Now, now, if you're like me, you've probably heard the psalm maybe for many years, and there are about 13 different ways to say it based on whatever Bible reading program or Awana Club or whatever it might have been where you memorized part of it. So I asked if we could put it up on the screen so we could all read it together in the, in the same way instead of just reciting it. So why don't you stand? Could you do that? And it'll be up on the screen here for us, I think. Maybe I'm mistaken. I think it will be. They don't? Okay. Well, you have your Bibles there. Let me, ask you, let me ask you to do this. If you have... Who has an ESV translation? Raise your hand just so I get an idea of that. 
Okay, so it doesn't matter. We're, we're just going to say it if you know it. I'll read it from the ESV, and if we have a few different words, that's okay. But it's good just to say these things out loud together. So let me read it for us, and you can just join with me as we go. Would you do that? Yes? Okay, let's do it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, as we study this this morning, we ask that you would give us light to see your truth, the conscience to apply it and live by it, and the conscientiousness to hold it fast, whatever the cost. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we'll set the context for this very familiar psalm in this way. In the world we live in, and in the spheres of influence and relationships that we occupy, we are continually surrounded by ultimate alternatives. In other words, whether in subtle ways or in more overt and direct ways, there are many things which can draw upon our deepest longings, and in so doing, promise us rest and peace and comfort and these kinds of things. And this is a reality that can manifest itself in many different ways. So for example, it may be uh, the promise of, of satisfaction and peace that comes through career fulfillment uh, that we find draws us out in a meaningful way. And so our life is oriented uniquely toward that goal. And in, in looking to achieve that, uh, we're sure that rest and acceptance is going to be found. Or maybe uh, that comfort will come when family life looks a certain way. You know, if I can just structure my home in a certain way, or if the savings account balance for family life is at a certain place, then I'm going to really find that comfort, that relief, that sense of purpose and rest that I've been hoping for. Or maybe it's a relationship. If I can just find the right one, or, or maybe if a present one starts appreciating me a little bit more, then I'm really going to feel fulfilled and at rest and at peace and find that a place of comfort. The list can just go on and on. We live surrounded by the siren song of ultimate alternatives. Uh, we live surrounded by elements that beckon to us with the promise of ultimate peace and rest and comfort and these kinds of things. Uh, but what do these things, even the good things, what do these things really deliver as they sneak into the place of being ultimate in our lives? Well, what we discover is they leave us wanting. The professional ladder, that career track, it always has one more ladder to climb. Family life faces new circumstances of pressure. The relationship that seemed so meaningful and so fulfilling can all of a sudden be devastated by different things. We live surrounded by ultimate alternatives, but when we place the totality of our hope and identity and purpose in those things, we're often not left at rest, but instead we're left wanting. Now listen to how one very successful artist describes her life. She says this. She says, I have an iron will, and with all of my will has, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. 
I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. So, so by all accounts, this particular artist is, is extraordinary by human measures. Her life uh, is, is something that would be uh, something many, many, many would aspire after. But with all of that, even by her own admission, her life remains in a state of fear and dissatisfaction. The, the allure of ultimate alternatives, success or whatever they may be, those allures never ultimately deliver on what they promise. And what we discover in Psalm 23 is that we have the, the ultimate and great satisfying relief to all of those other alternatives. In Psalm 23, we read about the Good Shepherd. And what we discover is that in the Good Shepherd, we find the rest and consolation that we long for, not because everything in our life is going to go exactly as we may have planned it, but with the Good Shepherd, we find that rest and consolation is there because no matter the meadows of peace we enjoy or the valleys of darkness and suffering that we may endure, no matter those things, the one who cares for us constantly, the one who cares for us perfectly, powerfully, and savingly is always with us. And it's not just that he's always with us, but he will see us through to a life-giving eternal end. So Psalm 23, it's a psalm of David, as the text, as the text tells us. We know King David, um, if you've read First, Sam, First and Second Samuel lately, you remember that he was, he was the anointed king of Israel, and he was, he was a poet of Israel, he was a singer of songs in Israel, and he penned this song. And so as we, as we think about this together, let's, let's begin. You can look at the text if you have it open in front of you. That's something we regularly say when we're preaching, open your Bibles and turn. This one's so familiar, it's probably fresh in your mind, but, but it is always good to remind ourselves, not least of all when you have a guest speaker, that we need to be opening our Bibles and making sure that what's being said from the front is actually in the Bible. Right? And, so, and so you can do that as we go. Uh, we'll begin with verse 1, which, which, which tells us very plainly, like we all know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So things begin in this psalm uh, very personally for David, and they actually begin very personally for us. Uh, the reference to the Lord there is a reference to the covenant name of God. It's the name Yahweh. Uh, that name literally means I am what I am, or I, I will be what I will be. The Lord revealed himself uh, by this name to Moses at the burning bush, if you remember that story, this is God's personal name. The Lord has revealed himself by this name as the one who is. He, he is not contingent on anyone or anything. He is not in need of anything from anyone. He is the one instead who exists entirely in the perfection of his holy, eternal, self-sufficient personhood. He is who he is. So David begins by saying, I am the entirely self-sufficient God who's personally revealed himself to his people. I am is my shepherd. And as we walk through biblical revelation, we see that in time the revelation of I am is something that's fully clarified in the person of Jesus himself. Jesus, God the Son, he enters into the created order and he reveals I am to us. 
In fact, that's one of the reasons the religious leaders are so upset with Jesus in his day. Jesus says things to the religious leaders, like in John chapter 8, where he tells them that before Abraham was, I am. And what is their response to that statement? Well, they pick up stones to throw at him. And why are they prepared to stone Jesus for that? Well, because he's just taken the name of God to himself in their mind. This is blasphemy. But of course, that doesn't represent blasphemy on the part of Jesus. That actually represents complete divine accuracy because in the coming of Jesus Christ, we have the ultimate revelation of God. We have I am come to us. And then along with that, another main way Jesus is revealed to us isn't just in a connection to the name I am, but Jesus is also revealed as the ultimate. He is the climactic shepherd of God's people. For example, in John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. Or in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, we're told there that that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Or you remember Peter's letter in 1 Peter chapter 5, he's described as the chief shepherd. So as we think about these things, right from the beginning of Psalm 23, we want to start with some important matters of clarity here. And that when David begins his poem and tells us that, I am is my shepherd, I shall not want. We know from our place in history and with the fullness of the scriptures before us, we know the climactic manifestation of I am who is my shepherd. The climactic manifestation of that is found in the coming of the Lord Jesus himself and God the Son. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd that Psalm 23 is pointing us forward to. And so from our historical place in God's revelation of himself, we ought to read Psalm 23 in this way. That the divine shepherd that David writes his poem about is revealed ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. You can say amen to that. And so with that in mind, as we look at Psalm 23, what's the very first thing we're told about what it's like to have Jesus as our shepherd? Well, the the first truth, and we should actually say it's the primary and overarching truth that's confessed here in this poem, is that with Jesus as my shepherd, I shall not want. So with Jesus as my shepherd, I will not find myself in a place of ultimate despairing need with no hope of provision. After all, that's what shepherds do, isn't it? They take care of the sheep. Sheep are notoriously unintelligent creatures. They're needy creatures, sheep are going wrong direction creatures, they get themselves stuck upside down and have to be turned back over. And what do shepherds do? Well, they exercise constant and vigilant care. Shepherds provide. Jesus is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then you see, it's exactly at this point that the truth of this psalm directs us in a better ultimate kind of direction. It's at this point that the the ultimate alternatives, which can call to us with their siren songs, it's at this point that those alternatives all around us, which promise hope or peace or rest or fulfillment, those kinds of things, are soundly countered. Because let's just try the first verse of Psalm 23 with the other things that can creep into our lives as the main things. So, So how about this? With professional career advancement as my main thing, I shall not want. No, that doesn't work. How about in seeking the perfect circle of relationships, I shall not want? That doesn't work either. How about by aligning myself with the most potent political concerns of the day, I shall not want? No, that's just depressing. 
How about by having my family life look a certain way I shall not want? No, that's not the case. Family life can have some of the most, the most unexpected twists and turns. Maybe by allowing what I feel to serve as the compass for my life, I shall not want? Huh? That doesn't work either. Feelings can't be trusted. Right? Maybe by setting up this amount of money in the bank, I shall not want? We know that's not true because uh, that weekend comes where you take a Junior to the ER and the water heater goes out at the same time and there goes the savings account. So, so, so we put all this together and we realize uh, with, with all these things filling in the blank, it just doesn't quite work. But how about this? With Jesus as my shepherd, I shall not want. Yes. Yes. Okay, so, so why yes? Because I've known people, you've known people, you've been praying about people this morning in your own congregation who say Psalm 23, but they get horrific cancer. Or they say Psalm 23 and they have empty bank accounts. They say Psalm 23, they're slighted in their workplace. They say Psalm 23, but they're abandoned by their families. They say Psalm 23 even though they're experiencing deep, sorrowful loss, enduring circumstances of all kinds of, of different trials with Jesus. Do they still say, I shall not want? You know some of these people. Do they still say, I shall not want? Yes, they do. They do. And why is that? Well, the rest of the poem gives us the answer. So if you look first at verses 2 and 3, we can see that with Jesus as my shepherd I shall not want because first of all, he is out ahead of me leading me to refreshment. He's out ahead of me leading me to refreshment. When you look there again at, at verses 2 and 3, as you think about them, it's that refreshment imagery that immediately comes to mind when we read about these verses and, and think about the shepherd and sheep metaphor. He, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Uh, these are places where the shepherd brings his flock to be refreshed, places of rest. And that refreshment isn't just found in the, in the places of rest, but it's found in restoration. He restores my soul. That word translated restores there in, in verse 3 is actually a return word in Hebrew. It's a word that means to stop going in one direction and be turned around and start going in the other direction. Jesus restores my soul. His refreshment comes to me as he's out in front turning me back around. Right? And, and we can need that turning at times, can't we? My soul can be going in so many ways which are contrary to life. We know this about ourselves. We can be honest about that. My soul, the essence of my personhood, it can be pulled in, in, in directions and in ways that are contrary to life itself. In the deepest reality of who I am, I can be defeated at times. In the deepest reality of who I am, I can personally dwell on those things that crowd out trust in God. There can be those hurts that run so deep, the things that others have done to me, the things that I have done to others, all of those kinds of things. And soon we can find ourselves far down the path, away from God's renewing promises. I move further and further and further from the truth of His Word, indulge in those things that, that cause my soul to be parched and weary and malnourished. We know what that's like with the worries we indulge in, the active sin we engage in, things contrary to the Lord's life-giving truth that we can show deference to. At times, the hurts we harbor, bitterness we cultivate, all of that goes on. And what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus comes and He restores. He, he engages in those conditions of our lives and He returns my soul to rest. Which is explained further in the next clause where we read that He leads us in paths of righteousness. Righteousness 
in, in the Old Testament, as we think about it conceptually, it, it's the way that, that is, uh, reflects wholeness and well-being under God. Righteousness is God's design for life that we're called to embrace by faith as we obey Him and walk in His ways. And then Jesus, in His leading kindness, turns us from paths of empty hope. He comes and turns us from positions of destructive indulgences, takes our soul in hand, as it were, and leads us towards this renewing life. He reorients us in the core of our being toward an embrace of what really leads to life. And so in so doing, He brings us to these places of rest. And He does this, you notice in, in, in the passage, He does this for His name's sake. He doesn't bring this refreshing kindness to you based on how well you've done in your private devotions this week. He doesn't bring this refreshing kindness to you because you've done a pretty good job of climbing the moral ladder and you've checked off a lot of the boxes and you've, just, you've got enough stars on the, on the fridge, so to speak, so he's going to come and be kind of nice to you. No, why does he do this restorative work? He does it based on who he is, the I am, the entirely self-sufficient one, the good shepherd who is bent on showing grace toward his people. For his name's sake, he comes and he turns us back around. So, so I wonder, just even as we're talking about this, if you can think about these kinds of refreshing experiences in your own life as you reflect on your history following Christ. Maybe you're far away, far away from calm waters. It's a season of life that's raging and not peaceful. We know those all too well. Maybe your soul has been looking for renewal in places that ultimately just bring more despair and less life. It's not green pastures that you find yourself in, but it's parched land. And then I wonder if you've had the experience of, of Jesus out in front of you, leading you, bringing you back around, and showing you the way of true hope and relief. Maybe that ministry comes through, through the words of a friend who reminds you of gospel truth. Or maybe it's that song, an old hymn maybe, or a sermon even, or, or, or through a time of humble prayer crying out to God, or through the persistent kindness of somebody, maybe in your congregation, who just won't give up on you even though so much time has gone by. Jesus comes as your shepherd and returns you to peace. Maybe He brings you back into the company of His people, His church, and He eliminates that loneliness and you find rest. Or, or maybe He brings you under the sound of His truth and the confusion that's been there is alleviated as clarity comes as His word is opened. Or maybe He brings us softness of heart to trust in Him afresh instead of being turned off and running away from Him. And as he does this, we experience seasons of, ref of refreshment. Seasons where our hearts are at ease. They're not raging anymore, but they're resting. Jesus does these things as our shepherd. And maybe even now you need him to bring his refreshing kindness again. Those ultimate alternatives that are presented so frequently around us, those things can leave us in very tumultuous places. But with, with Jesus as our shepherd, there is only renewing hope. And maybe your prayer this morning can even be something like, Lord Jesus, my soul needs renewal in your path of life. Lead me again in that path. I've been sitting down in fields that are void of nourishment. I'm turned the wrong way around. Come and lead me to your rest. So, so put all this together. And this is one reason why the psalmist can say, I shall not want. This doesn't mean that he'll have everything he ever wants. But it does mean, first of all, that his shepherd leader, the one who returns us to the path of life, the shepherd is out in front of him, leading him to places of renewal. So that's verses 2 and 3. Jesus is out ahead of me, leading me to refreshment. And then as our poem goes on, we see that Jesus isn't only out in front of us, leading us to refreshment, 
but he's actually also very present with us in times of deep darkness. This is verses 4 and 5. Maybe you've run across the name Horatius Bonar. Probably you haven't, let's be honest, but... But Horatius Bonar, he was, a, he was a 19th century minister in Scotland. He wrote over 600 hymns, if, if memory serves. But, but he also wrote a book entitled Night, Night of Weeping. It's a, it's a book about suffering as a Christian believer. And in the beginning of that book, he describes certain seasons of our life by saying, the way is rough and the desert blast is keen. It's an appropriate word picture there, isn't it? For those seasons of life that are uniquely pressure-filled as, as we're following Jesus through times of trial or whatever it may be. The way is rough and the desert blast is, clean, is keen. That picture is helpful. It's clarifying. And in a similar way here, the psalmist describes times of unique hardship with a, with a picture that is extremely, extremely meaningful. And the, and the metaphor the psalmist picks up is what he calls the valley of the shadow of death. So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Throughout the scriptures, this, this term, which we have translated that way, valley of the shadow of death, it's, it's literally translated from Hebrew as death valley, uh, but, but this term is used in a figurative way throughout the Old Testament, very often to speak of situations of deep turmoil that overwhelm us with sorrow and fear. That, that's why the English translators here, they actually add that word shadow to help clarify it. In, in certain circumstances, it's like the, the valley of death is this long shadow cast over our lives. And it's no surprise to us that Job actually uses the, the, the uh, imagery here more than anybody else in the Old Testament. Uh, Job uses this word most of all. He uses it, for example, to speak of death valleys, circles under my eyes. Right? So, so we get a picture of, of a drawn and gaunt face in the midst of pain. Job uses the term to talk about great terrors. He uses the term to talk about uh, the land of gloom and the gates of the dead. Valley of the shadow of death translates a term that indicates danger, discouragement, distress. And in verse 4, the psalmist says that though I go through a kind of darkness that seems overwhelmingly full of sorrow, of distress, of danger, though I go through death valley in my life, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. Fear is a a persistent thing, isn't it? This is David Pallison who made the point that fear occurs in our life at the intersection of inability and vulnerability. That's when we start to be afraid. When I'm vulnerable, when there's circumstances that are threatening to me, and when I'm unable, when I can't do anything about those, that's when fear begins to exist for me. So the valley of the shadow of death starts looming. Circumstances that seem like they'll crush us. Circumstances that seem like they'll carry us away, destroy us, remove all hope from us. Those things enter our lives like a great, dark, heavy shadow. And what does the psalmist say? I will fear no evil. As righteousness is what points to to all of life under God in the Old Testament. Evil is all that points to death and destruction and contrariness to God in the Old Testament. So so I will fear no element that is against God and contrary to life because you're with me. You notice the psalmist doesn't say, I will fear no evil because you make that dark shadow go away really, really quickly after I pray about it. He doesn't say, I will fear no evil because as soon as that evil comes, you make it go away in my life and it's not there anymore at all whatsoever. He doesn't say that. We know the psalmist, he's far too honest to make a comment like that. 
Instead, he says, he'll make it through this darkness, not fearing evil, because the shepherd is with him. You notice that the imagery that's just developing here. And in the last section, the shepherd was leading the psalmist. So the good shepherd is out in front. Now the shepherd is with him. He's, he's beside him in the deep darkness. The shepherd is very present with him. You are with me. There's a specific experience of, of the shepherd's near presence that's indicated here as the psalmist goes through those dark valleys. We can actually notice how this is punctuated just in the shift of language that occurs here in verse 4. Uh, because so far the psalmist, he's been talking about the shepherd in the third person, hasn't he? he? He makes me lie down, he leads me, he restores me, and so on, all this third person kind of language. But here things change. And the darkness descends... And the language changes to direct address. It's not he, 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 he. It's you, 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 you. Right? You are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. That The shepherd who's out in front leading us to refreshment is the shepherd who is also very personally present with us when the darkness descends. And this is, this is the amazing thing about Jesus, is, is that in the darkness, He is right alongside. He, he's, he's not up the trail, merely waiting for us to get our act together so we can start following Him better again. No, no. Like a good shepherd, He's right in it with His sheep. Remember how the writer to the Hebrews brings this up. Jesus, Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. We're told from the book of Hebrews, He can identify with us in our seasons of sorrow and suffering. He knows the pain and temptations. And He doesn't just know those things omnisciently because He's God. Omniscience is that big word that speaks about God's total knowledge over all things. Jesus doesn't just know about suffering and hardship omnisciently because He knows all things. Jesus actually knows about hardship and suffering because he has been tempted in every way as we are and yet is without sin. He's experienced the full pressure experientially of the sorrows that we can face in this life. Jesus has actually experienced the full penalty even due to us because of our sin. You think about that at the cross, how he drank the full cup of death judgment for us. You know, if, if, if we die apart from Christ and we stand before God being prepared to be judged for our sins, we bear the penalty for the sins we've committed. Jesus went to the cross and he bore the entire judgment penalty for all who will ever trust in him. Imagine the weight of the burden that he bore for us in that moment, the pain of what that represented. It's no wonder he had to be both man and God. Jesus has known the deepest darkness that could ever possibly be present. He's known betrayal. He's known physical pain. He's known the full temptation of the devil's assaults. He knows the tortures of death. He knows the full payment price for sin. All of these kinds of things. The pain Jesus is experientially acquainted with far outweighs both our comprehension and our personal experience. Whatever it is, Jesus has endured more fully, more perfectly, and more completely the pains that can come. And in the darkness, he's present there with the psalmist, and the psalmist knows this. He starts addressing him directly. You, 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 you. He's with me. I'm speaking to him now. And it's not just that Jesus is with us, but like a good shepherd in the darkness and danger, he's actually with us, and he's armed. You see that there? His rod, which is the shepherd's implement for fighting off wolves and bears and creatures of that sort, 
He has the rod with him and he has his staff, which is the implement used for, for pulling sheep back from danger. So the Lord who's present with us when we're going through the darkness is with us to protect us and keep us. And his strength is such, his potency is such, that as we read on here we see that he even makes a table. He is even able to make a feast of provision for us while we're surrounded by all things against us. Right in the middle with enemies all around. He anoints us with oil. That's the dusty traveler's refreshment. That's the sheep's medicine. He anoints us with oil. My cup overflows. All I need and more comes to me, not just because my shepherd leads me, but because in the deepest and even most terrifying darkness, he's there in full power, present with me. And so we remind ourselves that for all that the darkness can bring into our lives... Maybe one of the worst effects of that darkness is isolation. Being alone. No one to help, no one to be near, no one to speak to or call to or cry to. Darkness comes to it all when, when, the, when the way is rough and the desert blast is, clean, is keen, when we're going through the valley of the shadow, all of these things. But for the one who knows Jesus, that darkness is never isolated darkness. For the one who knows Jesus, we pass through death valleys with the promised comfort, the potent defense, even the unique provision of Jesus himself. Unlike those ultimate alternatives, those things that, that are ultimately false hopes around us, which, which so quickly prove unhelpful when the darkness descends. Unlike those things, when darkness descends, Jesus doesn't get further, he gets closer. And he comes armed to protect and to keep us. And he becomes potent to provide for us. So much so that we can eat a feast surrounded by enemies that dare not trust us. Remember fear. Fear is that intersection of inability and vulnerability. With Jesus, fear is removed because he is the one who's with us with all power and persevering strength ultimately to protect us. So the darkness may be dark, but, but even as the psalmist will say later on, David later on, the darkness is not dark to you. Death Valley lasts only for a while. And here the psalmist, we see he's not ultimately undone in that set of circumstances, but instead uh, his good shepherd is present with him and he makes it through. He makes it out. And I wonder maybe this morning if, if you feel a need for Jesus to be uniquely present with you in your current circumstances. He's out in front leading and that's wonderful. That's good to know. But do you feel that need to, to switch from talking about Jesus to talking to Him? Third person, He makes me lie down, He leads, He restores, and then the darkness comes. I will fear no evil for you're with me. You protect me. You comfort me. You prepare. So be near to me now, Lord Jesus. That may need to be your prayer in a unique way this morning. Jesus, my good shepherd, He's not only out in front leading me to refreshment, but He's right next to me. He's with us. He's ever-present with us, even as we go through the shadows and the gloom. And then finally, Jesus, my good shepherd, He pursues me. He pursues me. This is verse 6. Verse 6 actually describes the shepherd now in, in character quality terms. Surely goodness Goodness, that's that said word in Hebrew. It's the word that speaks of God's uh, loyal and committed love to His people. Surely goodness and mercy will what? Well, they'll follow me all the days of my life. And we see the picture that's developing here. The shepherd who's out in front leading me to places of refreshment is the shepherd who's ever present with me in death valleys. 
And now he's also the shepherd who is following hard behind me, full of committed love and mercy, moving me toward eternal rest with God. The word translated as follow here. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. The word translated as as follow here is used more often than not in the Old Testament in in a somewhat negative sense to describe a victorious army's pursuit of, a, of, of an army that they've defeated. So, so they're pursuing them to plunder them. That's what that's a pursue word that's, that's used here. Of course, here the word's not negative. It's actually very positive, but it's a very potent word. It's, it's a word that's full of, of extraordinary energy. So it's the Lord's goodness and mercy, His steadfast love, His unmerited favor. We could say they follow hard. They chase hard after me all the days of my life, ultimately bringing me to His eternal place of restorative rest. In fact, there's an interesting connection in that the word dwell there in verse 6, it's actually the same restoration word we already had back in verse 3. He restores my soul, verse 3. Literally, verse 6, I shall be restored to the house of the Lord forever. This is the work of the one who cares for us without fail. So past the green pastures, past the streams, through the dark valleys, the Lord is following hard after me. He's following hard after you, pressing us forward to the joy of His eternal presence. So those ultimate alternatives that are around us, those things, those things contrary to God, we recognize the fact that they always take. They always pull you away. Have you noticed that? What's contrary to God's good way, alternatives to God, they always leave you wanting. They leave you longing. They leave you unfulfilled and more empty than before. They leave you purposeless so often and void. We know that experience. But not so with the Good Shepherd. Because Jesus doesn't leave us wanting. He doesn't leave us void. Instead, what we see is that Jesus is actually the one who surrounds us. Do you see how David is ultimately describing things here? Jesus out in front leading. Jesus is beside me, comforting and protecting. And then he's following hard behind us, pressing us forward to our heavenly home. And the good shepherd surrounds us with his care, so our final place is not removed from life. But instead, our final place is the eternal heavenly rest of being in the Lord's presence forever. It's no wonder the psalmist sings later in Psalm 125, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. Out front, present with, following hard behind. With all the other alternatives that can occupy uh, the highest place in our hearts from time to time, then those things were drawn down to death. But with Jesus, with Jesus, we're surrounded by His abundant life. And if there's any, ever any kind of doubt about that, we must check our thinking by the cross. In fact, we, we, we must think of the cross as we consider this subject because that's where Jesus climactically defines His good shepherd's status. John chapter 10, we already referenced it, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And then what does he follow that up? What does the good shepherd do? I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If there is any doubt that the Lord's goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, that doubt is relieved by remembering that Jesus gave his life in order that all who trust in Him can be secured by His life, His payment for our sin, His reconciling work to bring us back to God. We can be guaranteed a secure future with God because Jesus is the one who exercised such protection that He saved us from the entirety of the judgment that we would have otherwise deserved. 
Surrounded by the purpose and power of Christ for an eternal rest, he bled to purchase that for us. So a psalm like this, it it comes as a reminder to us, and as it does, it gives us pause. We just check ourselves by it. Am I trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus? Have there been alternatives that have started to sneak in that maybe draw your hope away from the sufficiency of what He alone can offer? You know the old hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me? What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt His tender mercy? Who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in Him to dwell. For I know... Whate'er befalls me, Jesus doeth all things well. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Now as we prepare to share the Lord's Supper together, I want to read First Timothy chapter six, verse eleven B and twelve, as a confession of faith. <clears throat> Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and abide.